Let's pray. Father, as we reflect upon those words of Scripture today, we pray that through them you would speak to us and that from them we might learn something about what it means to be your people in the world today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some might regard that as an optimistic prayer. They might see the passage as sort of a little bit uh, unusual to have a Bible reading on. Um, I must confess that I, when I'd been reading the Bible and got to Romans chapter 16, I had tended to speed through it. And sort of I put, the temptation was to put it in the same category as those great long lists of names in the Old Testament or the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospels of uh, Matthew and Luke. But uh, some years ago, I was doing a course and I actually had to write an essay on Romans chapter 16. And I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting task to do. So got into it. And, and Chris knew I had a particular interest in this chapter, having written this essay on it. And he said to me, oh, I'm not going to worry about Romans 16 in the series, Dad. You can just go on with Romans 13 in my absence. And I said, you're not going to wait to 16. I said, it's a really important chapter. There's a lot to learn from it. He said, well, you do it then. <laughs> so we're doing it. And uh, it is, uh, as I said, a really interesting uh, chapter. Now, I think uh, one of the pieces of advice, though, when you read a book is you start at the beginning and you end at the end and you don't leave anything in between. Well, we're leaving out today. I understand Chris got the end of chapter 12 last week. We're leaving out 13, 14 and 15. He'll pick those up in the future, probably from next week. But today we're jumping to the end. It's not going to change the outcome because, as you've heard, it's just the, the greeting section at the end of the letter. But it's a really interesting set of greetings and it really is a wonderful window into what church life was like in the first century AD. As, as John said, Paul's writing uh, from Corinth. It's probably about the year 57 AD. So we're talking almost 30 years after Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And he's writing to the church in Rome. And it becomes obvious that uh, this is a place even though it's the great capital city of the Roman Empire, uh, Paul has not yet been to, although he has a strong desire to do so in the future. Chapter 15 ended with the words, the God of peace be with you all, amen. And when we hear the word amen, we usually think it's over. But it's just about to start with a new beginning with the greetings. And the first of the greetings is actually, a, rather than a greeting, it's, a commendation. Paul commends a lady called Phoebe uh, to the church at Rome. And quite probably, she was the person who was going to be the bearer of this letter, taking it from where Paul was in Corinth uh, to where the audience was in uh, Rome. And she's described as being uh, a deacon in the church at Crenshaw. Now, if I pronounce any of these words differently to John pronounce them, that doesn't mean he was wrong and I'm right. It could mean we're both wrong or we're both right. No, it can't mean that, can it? But uh, we might, might both be wrong as well. So what, this is what Paul says about Phoebe. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. 
So what do we learn about this person? Well, we learn she was a deacon, that she was a servant-hearted woman, and uh, probably she was uh, a person who had a particular leadership role in the life of the early church. Now, Paul appears to be stationed in Corinth. This Crenshaw that's mentioned in the, in the letter is about seven kilometres away from Corinth, sort of perhaps was an outpost of the Corinthian church. And uh, her name, Phoebe, actually was the name of one of the Titan gods in Greek mythology. So the fact she had that name suggests that she'd actually become a Christian or from a decidedly non-Jewish background and was probably one of the people who had been converted through Paul's ministry in the area. So here we've got a reminder of the fact that someone who's got this uh, Greek background, as you would expect in Corinth, but someone with this Greek background who's been a follower of the Greek gods or has been trained up been brought up in the, amongst to believe in the Greek gods, has suddenly become a follower of Jesus. And uh, it's a reminder that the church is made up of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, including different religious backgrounds. Some of us will have been Christians for as long as we can remember. Some of us will have come to faith uh, from a background of just pure agnosticism. Some of us may have come to faith from believing in a, in a religious system that has nothing what to do whatsoever with the Christian gospel. Well, Phoebe is one of those people who probably has been brought up in that sort of background. She, as I said, she's described as a deacon or a servant, as some of the translations have it. This word is actually the same word that's used by Paul in the Acts of the Apostles to describe those people who were entrusted with specific servant ministries in the church. And Paul was one of the people, he says, who had benefited from her servant heart. So what do we learn from, firstly, Phoebe in this passage? First thing, she stands before us as someone who had a servant heart, as a woman who was actively involved in ministry, and as someone who was highly esteemed by the Apostle Paul, and a person of great integrity, given the fact that Paul was entrusting to her the responsibility of taking this letter to the church in Rome. And we really need lots of Phoebes in our church today. People who are willing servants, whether they're male or female, but certainly we need the men and the women, who have this servant heart, people who are people of integrity, who can be trusted to do what God requires of them. So we leave Phoebe aside for one moment. Don't panic, we're not going to go through all the names. And in verses 4 through to 15, Paul sends his greetings to um, specific Christians in Rome. Remember, he's never been there. Somehow or other, he's in contact with them. And uh, There are 26 people mentioned by name, two others who were referred to by virtue of the relationships that they have with those who are named, and they're extended from that references to wider gatherings as well. Now, the fact that Paul knew so many Christians in Rome, even though he'd not been there, is an indication of the incredible mobility that existed amongst the early Christians, 
and the high regard they had for the Apostle Paul. Um, we know very little about most of the people mentioned by Paul, but an analysis of their names suggests that they were a mixture of Jewish, Greek and Latin names. And Once again, it shows this incredible ethnic diversity of the early church. They weren't all people just like us. They were people who were quite different from one another in their backgrounds, but they were united by a shared faith in Jesus. Some of the people whose names are mentioned can probably be associated with the nobility or ruling classes, but most would have been either slaves or people who had once been slaves and come to experience freedom. Yet another indication of this cultural and social diversity in the contemporary church in the first century AD. And our church today needs to be a church that reflects the diversity of the community in which we live. One of the things I really value about coming to this church in the last little while is to see the number of people who clearly come from cultures that are non-Anglo. When I came here perhaps three or so years ago, I think there was not one person in that category. So a bit more diversity is beginning to be expressed in the life of this church. And that's an encouraging thing to see. So I'm just going to zero in on a couple of the uh, 28 individuals who are mentioned in the greetings that Paul sends to those in Rome. In verses 3 to 4, the per first two people who are mentioned are a husband and wife team named Aquila and Priscilla. And you can read more about them in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18. They were people who, like Paul, were Jews by background, tent makers by trade. They were the people who had hosted Paul during his time in Corinth. And he describes them as being his fellow workers in Christ Jesus who had risked their lives for his sake. So here we have people, husband and wife, sharing deeply in ministry, committed to serve the Lord wherever they were, and once they had been in Rome, we find from Acts, now they're in Corinth. They're going to serve the Lord no matter where they are, what the circumstances may be, even if serving the Lord involves a risk to their personal safety. So we need people like that today, people who are willing to share deeply in ministry, people who are going to serve the Lord wherever they are, even if it involves risk. And let's face it, risk is an inevitable part of professing faith in Jesus Christ. It's no guarantee of safety in terms of this world, but to be a true follower of Jesus potentially exposes us to risk, even in a country such as ours, where there's no outright persecution of Christians. Next uh, people I'd like to signal out from the reading, uh, two people, Androdicus and Junius. Now the second one, there's a bit of debate about whether it should read Junia or Junius, and uh, one name would be male and one name would be female. If there was an S on the end, it would be male. And if there's no S on the end, it would be female. I think I've got it the right way around. So 
is this junior or junius a male or a female? Well, I've done a bit of research on this, and uh, the most interesting commentary I read was by a fellow called James Edwards, who uh, did not believe that Junior was an, uh, an apostle, but he said, this is definitely a female name. And the reason he reaches that conclusion is he studied 250 examples of the name in Greek literature, not just New Testament literature, wider Greek literature, and not one of those examples he came across was actually masculine. And he concluded there's nearly incontrovertible evidence the name is feminine, which would make Andronicus and Junius husband and wife, or perhaps brother and sister. But what it means if uh, Junior is female is we actually have uh, somebody who is a female apostle. Not an apostle in the sense of the uh, original 12, and, but an apostle in the wider sense of the word, somebody who was sent with a commission to go and break new ground in the spread of the gospel. Both Junia and Andronicus served as apostles in this secondary sense, sharing the good news of Jesus, breaking new ground. Now, the fact that nine of the people to whom Paul sends greetings were women, two of whom, it appears, worked with their husbands and were fully involved in ministry, points to a very significant role that women had in the early church. And the picture that emerges of the makeup of the church in Rome clearly points to a community in which barriers of class, gender and ethnic background, those things that naturally separated people from one another, were overridden by the faith that people had in Jesus Christ. Remember Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians, in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, we're all one in Christ Jesus. So the early church stands as, an, as a profound challenge to any contemporary expression of church that would exclude people on the basis of ethnicity, class or gender. Another thing that is interesting about the uh, greetings that Paul sends to the Roman church is that he recognises three quite distinct groupings of Christians in that church. In fact, we probably shouldn't say the church at Rome, but rather the churches at Rome. There's a church that meets in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. There's the group who met with Asyncritus, Legion, Hermes, Petrobus and Hermas. Another group, uh, Philogus, Julius, sorry, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus. So we've got these gatherings of Christians. Now, the existence of what were home-based churches in, in the church at Rome is a reminder to us that in the first few centuries, Christians met together in much smaller groups than we would common think of, commonly think about. There's no concept of a megachurch. Because they met in homes, even the largest home would have held about 50 or 60 people. And uh, 
They had no special buildings as we know it today. And oh, what a liberating thing that would be uh, in lots and lots of ways. I think in my years of experience in ministry, I have spent too much time talking about things that are too trivial, even though they might be important, like leaking gutters or what colour should we paint the walls or all the really important gospel issues, I joke. But those things have become too often things that take up too much time. We need to get back to the understanding that in essence, we are a community of believers called to faith in Jesus Christ. Because of that faith we have in Jesus Christ, called to express that gospel to the world in which we live. There's one other thing that's interesting in this greeting passage. Paul tells the early Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss. That's not very COVID safe, is it? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, I think what it reminds us of is there was room for physical expressions of a deep friendship between Christians. And while today we mightn't take that advice literally, surely we can find ways that are health safe, culturally relevant, and not unwelcome of actually expressing the bonds we feel one another in a way that is physical. Even if in a COVID environment it might be the holy elbow nudge. Okay, well, the second part of verse 16, Paul sends his greetings to all the churches of Christ. So, and then the fact that he's able to do that shows, I think, the depth and the breadth of the relationship he had with all the scattered churches. And it shows the deep sense of unity that existed among Christian people. So we leave the first part of Romans 16, and we, starting in verse 17, we have a warning. Paul warns the Roman Christians to watch out for those within the church who are trying to create division by promoting teaching that was contrary to the gospel. Now remember, the years around about 57 AD, about a decade has passed almost since the Council of Jerusalem, which had tried to sort out the whole question of how Jewish and Gentile believers related to one another and what was necessary and what was not necessary. But even though they'd sorted that out around about 10 years earlier, seems by now the issue is raising its head again. Just because you've sorted something out once, it doesn't mean it's sorted out for all time. And uh, Paul's admonition to the uh, church was to be wise about what is good and to be innocent about what is evil. And then in the face of evil, Paul offers them this word of reassurance. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Because those words are an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the, uh, the fact that a seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. Now, God's good creation has been corrupted by human rebellion, but there is this uh, strong word here that God will ultimately be triumphant over all evil. 
That doesn't mean we're going to experience it here and now. And that's why we need to uh, have that word reassurance, word of reassurance. The God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. Yes, there will be suffering. Yes, there will be pain along the way. But in Christ, we have the ultimate victory. And in the fullness of time, it will come. Then, in verses 21 and following of the letter, Paul passes on greetings from eight people who are with him in Corinth as he's writing this letter. First one is Timothy, his young fellow worker who accompanied him on his second and third missionary journeys. There's three people, Lucius, Jason and Sospata, who he describes as relatives, which could mean either they were uh, fellow Jews or they were blood relatives, probably they were fellow Jews. In verse 22, there's a bit of an interruption to the flow and this fellow called Tertius uh, says, uh, he sends his greetings and he's been acting like a scribe for Paul as he's writing the letter. And finally, in uh, verses 23 and following, there's greetings from Gaius, Erastus and Cortus. About Cortus we know nothing. Given that Romans was written from Corinth, this Gaius fellow is probably the same Gaius who was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1 as having been baptised by Paul. And given that Gaius hosted Paul in the whole Corinthian church, it seems to indicate that he was a person of considerable means. And there's a fellow called Erastus. Now, Erastus, depending on what translation you read, is said to be either the director of public works or the city treasurer. It's the Greek word oikonomos, from which we get our word economy. Now, that, this Erastus fellow is really quite interesting. In the ruins of ancient Corinth, there's a stone dating from the first century AD been found, it's known today as the Erastus inscription. You can go home and do a Google on it if you like. The Erastus inscription. And it's it was been found in Corinth on the road leading up to the, uh, the amphitheatre. And what the inscription says is that uh, Erastus laid this pavement at his own expense in return for his office. In other words, Thanks for voting for me. This is the good work I've done. It's like one of those signs you see, you know, this, was, uh, this project was sponsored by the such and such government's such and such program. It was that sort of sign in, in ancient times. Now, what's interesting about Erastus' inscription, and it's presumably the same as Erastus, given that he holds that high office, once again, it's a reminder that while not many of the Christians were powerful or of noble birth, some of them were. And the gospel had clearly reached people with wealth and influence, even though they appear to have been a minority in the early church. So once again, we should never despise people because of their wealth. The gospel is good news for all people, both rich and poor, but it challenges them in different sorts of ways. And then finally, Paul's letter comes to an end and he gives his, uh, he ascribes glory to God. 
Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever, through Jesus Christ. Amen. And that is his final amen this time. So I hope uh, you haven't found that too tedious. Next time you uh, see a long list of names in the Bible, say, well, I might not understand exactly why it's all there, but there's got to be a reason for it. And I believe that the reason this passage is here is to provide us this little snapshot into the life of the early church. A snapshot of community which was uh, strongly interconnected, even though people were physically more separated than we would expect today, we would experience today. It gives an, it gives an insight into community where people come from all sorts of uh, backgrounds, by ter in terms of how w well off they were and what their religious background or lack thereof was. And I think it invites us to be that sort of church in our world today, a church for all people showing forth the good news of God's love in Jesus Christ. May we grow to be that sort of church more and more as we journey on. Amen. Amen.